Welcome back, everybody, to episode two of the Q&A podcast with John and Ben. So, John, last week we looked at, it was kind of more of an introduction to why we should consider the end times theology, eschatology. Um, I think we arrived at the hopeful conclusion that Jesus is coming back. I think everyone agrees on that. And what's important is to um, be ready for that and tell others that he's coming back. But um, this time I'd like to know a bit more about how people say he's going to come back, the different... Um, views on that and of course uh, at the moment with the the pandemic and, and the disease do you think that's a sign that Jesus is coming back soon yeah that's a good question and I think it's important that we understand why people ask that question when they want to know is COVID-19 a, some sort of a sign of Jesus's soon return there's there's good reasons for it and, and it really goes back to some things that Jesus said uh, in Luke chapter 21 and I'm reading from the New King James Version here it says Then Jesus said to them, nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. And the New International Version, the English Standard Version, they they all use that word pestilences. Pestilences. I'm not too familiar with that term. Does it mean like plague? Yes, it it is. It's exactly what it is. It's like a plague. In fact, it's it's a word that can mean plague or the things that cause a plague, like the, the critters that would kind of cause a plague, i.e. rats or fleas in the, during the, the, the Great Plague of right. Europe. And so that's kind of the idea. And in fact, in Matthew's uh, kind of parallel passage, Matthew 24, it also uses the word pestilence, but it's only King James that uses the word where it says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Right. The reason people see is this connected to the end times is the context in which Jesus is speaking this stuff. Yes, that sounds pretty clear. The end times are associated with some kind of disease. Is that, yeah, is that well, what we're seeing now? Is that COVID? Well, and that's, that's kind of, to understand the context, we have to know that Jesus is talking at a time when the, he has told the disciples the temple is going to be destroyed. It's the center of their uh, worship. It's the, where they thought the, the Messiah would kind of reign from Jerusalem. So the temple is going to be destroyed. What does that mean? And so uh, when he tells him this, and then they ask him, is this going to, what's going to be the sign of your coming? He then kind of rattles off this list of these things that are going to come. Mm. And he, he says this in, in Matthew 24, 8, he says, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. That's the, how the ESV puts it. Mm. And it's interesting that he uses birth pangs as kind of the metaphor to describe these signs because we all, most of us know, especially if we've uh, had children, we know that uh, when a woman's body is getting ready to give birth, she has these things called Braxton Hicks contractions. They're preparing her, her body to actually deliver a baby and they get more frequent and more intense the closer to the delivery. And so a common interpretation of this is that these signs are going to get more frequent and more intense before the coming of the Lord. So that's kind of where they get this, where people get this mindset, where they think this is, is happening. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, Jesus talking there in Matthew 24 about these birth pains, I, I've heard uh, there's different views on some people think all the stuff he was talking about has happened already. Um, a lot of it's happened, some is still to happen, or maybe none of it's happened yet, and we're waiting totally for the, for the future. Can you tell me a bit more about the different yeah, ways to... Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I think, as we were talking about this before, but I think it's important that we start actually with a scenario where right before Jesus ascends to heaven, so this is after Jesus has died on the cross for humanity, this is after he's resurrected from the dead, as he predicted, this is at the end of kind of the 40 days when he's been making many appearances as the resurrected Savior to his disciples and at one time 500 uh, at once. 
Um, at the end, right before he ascends, he's given some instructions to his disciples in uh, Acts chapter 1. So why don't you go ahead and read Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Sure. So that says, um, Therefore, when the disciples had come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, John, just from reading that, I already see the disciples asking, will you at this time restore the kingdom? So they were clearly pretty keen on it happening soon or were expecting it soon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's actually what's going on here. There's kind of a what's what's going on is they're expecting even even after Jesus has taught them what he's taught them that we just kind of referred to in Luke 21 and in Matthew 24, even though now Christ has uh, been crucified and resurrected as they uh, were kind of not clued up to until it happened. Even after all that, even after being taught by the resurrected Christ for, for, for 40 days, basically, they're still thinking this is the time. This is when Israel, the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. Uh, and, and there's a couple, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that, or a couple of reasons why uh, Jesus is saying, uh, you know, look, it's not for you to know the times. I, I think one thing that is is that he wanted them to make sure that they weren't focused on that, that he's not denying that there is a literal kingdom to be had, that he is going to uh, be reigning as king on the earth. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But he's saying, look, your priority as my disciples is not to know times and seasons. Your priority is to uh, to really bring the gospel uh, to the nations. And therefore, he's telling them, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit gives you the power to do that, to testify of who he is and what he's done to bring salvation to uh, the uh, to the nations. Now, what's interesting about this as well is that um, th- it's obvious that they were really still longing and expecting the kingdom of God mm-hmm. to come at any time. Okay, the king came, the Messiah came. Jesus is the God's chosen king, and so the kingdom of God should happen any time. Yeah, maybe even in their lifetime, they uh, were hoping. Absolutely, they, they, they were even expecting it possibly in their their lifetime. And it's interesting because that continued even after Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, as you know, Ben, is is what happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. At the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. They're all speaking in known languages that they couldn't have known naturally. Uh, the, those who spoke those languages that were there for the feast are hearing the praises of God in their own language. It's a supernatural sign that God is indeed doing this work to restore uh, people back to himself through the gospel. So they preach the gospel. They call the Israelites there who hear this to to repentance and faith, and 3,000 men uh, are converted in one day. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting, though, is we get to Acts chapter 3, and uh, those uh, disciples, as well as probably uh, many of these men who were converted, go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship and to pray, uh, and as they're entering into the temple, there's there's someone there. You remember who was there? Um, wasn't it like a crippled guy? Does Peter heal him? That's right, exactly. There's that that lame man who uh, has been lame for a long time, and it's that famous story where, where Peter passes by and says, looks at him and says, "Silver and gold I have not, 
that the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk in this lame man is totally healed. Mm. And he follows them into the temple, something he wouldn't have been able to do, not just because he was physically lame, but he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple as a lame man. So now he's able to enter into the place of God's presence, so to speak. He's able to be in that place and celebrate. And all these Jewish men see this and they're saying, how does this happen? Peter, how do you do this? And Peter preaches the gospel to them again and says, it's not me, but it's the name of Jesus. It's who Jesus is that, that has made this man well. It's the power of God because of Christ who's made this man well. And so when he's preaching the gospel to them, here's how he calls these Jewish men to respond. Now, Remember, we're talking about the reality that um, uh, they expect God's kingdom to come anytime. They're expecting Christ to set up his kingdom at any time. And here's what he says. Peter says to these Jews, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God and that God may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive and tell the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Mm -hmm. So Peter, after Pentecost, is expecting a literal kingdom on earth, the restoration of all things, and, and in a sense kind of saying, if you Jews would just receive Christ, if you guys would realize that we're right, he is the Messiah, and get on board, we'd see the restoration of everything else and the Lord return. So there is this kind of, um, uh, expectation and longing that they have for the Messiah, which is really important. Yes, yes. But it, it also seems like they felt that something had to happen first before Jesus came back. Um, yes. do, do you think for us Christians today, is it the same message Jesus gave to his disciples? Don't worry about the time, the seasons, don't worry about conspiracies. All that matters is preach me. Or is there some sense in which we can look into these things and begin to see, as you said, that the, the birth pangs, you know, are we getting closer? Yeah, I, I, in a sense, it's 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 both and. Uh, I think there's there's the uh, 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 a general idea that we should have a sense of urgency and longing for the Lord's return. That's that's what the how the book of Revelation ends. Even so, even so, uh, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Lord yeah. Jesus. And so we should have that longing. But there's also the sense that these things have to take place. In fact, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, when Jesus is talking about these things. Um, he's, uh, he basically says these birth pangs will happen, but the end is not yet. In other words, these things are going to continue to happen in, in, a, in a more frequent and intense uh, time. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's returning at that moment. So there seems to be this tension between this, yes, the Lord could come back uh, at, at pretty much any time, and yet, no, certain things have to take place before it happens. Mm, yeah, and I, I've, I've heard different views on this. I, I could possibly name different things to do with the millennium. I, I don't understand them very well, sure. but it seems like some people say, Jesus could come back at any time. Other people say, no, no, these things have to happen first. And as far as I understand, it's all to do with this millennium, John. Where's that come from? Yes, exactly. That, that idea of a millennium, which is literally a, another way to say a thousand-year time period comes from Revelation chapter 20. So as we were talking about this before, why don't you read those verses, Ben? Revelation 20 verses 4 to 6. Sure. So that says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and we shall reign with him a thousand years. Uh, now, John, there's some weird stuff going on there. The the mark of the beast, uh, people choosing to worship this this or that. Will, will we get into that this session? No, I think we'll talk more about what that stuff is about. That there's one of the some of the questions that have been presented to us are around what's being referenced here as the the mark of the beast or his image and uh, receiving marks on your forehead, all that kind of thing. We'll look a little bit more about that next time okay. in, in, in episode three. Sure. But so, I, so all that's important this time is a thousand years. That's the well. I think it's thing. yes, it's important because really, how you view these thousand years, what you think's happening here, will determine how you interpret the rest of these things. Um, in fact, it's really important, I think, for us to say at this point, we're going to look at the three main ways to interpret these verses, the, 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 or specifically the three main ways to look at this thousand-year reign. Um, and it's, it's important that we, we know what these things are. It's also important that we recognize that, that people who, who love Jesus, they, these are born-again believers who, who see God's word as uh, the authority, the scriptures as the authority, as an errant, um, who long for Christ's return, do have different views about what this verse means. Mm-hmm. And those different views do impact how they interpret different things of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for us to understand that because I think even at Servants Church, there's going to be people who have different views of the millennium. Mm-hmm. And so we want to we be clear about that because so that we don't, uh, as we discuss these things, as we wrestle through what's going on right now, uh, what is a sign of the end, what's not a sign of the end, that kind of a thing, that we aren't speaking over each other's heads, that we're giving grace to each other as fellow believers uh, about where we stand on these different views. Okay, sure. So let's let's not divide over this. But before we can have a informed discussion, let's let's look at a bit more about these interpretations. Um, I, as much as I've understood, there's a difference between taking the thousand years literally or or, or not. I've heard some people call themselves post millennialists. John, what's that? Yes, yes. So there's actually three main views, and the first one is a, a, what we'll call the post-millennialist view, or what's called post-millennialist view, and they see this thousand years not as um, a literal thousand years, uh, but as kind of a, the golden era of Christianity. It kind of it begins when Christ reigns, and it continues uh, to see a gradual increase of 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 the gospel, the the influence of the gospel and its power throughout the globe. And so in a sense, the world's gradually being Christianized by this view. And so the thousand year reign is Christ reigning through the proclamation of the gospel, Christ's power being distributed uh, through the proclamation of the gospel and the acceptance of the gospel. And the world gets progressively more Christian, basically, uh, or at least more Christianized. Uh, basically. And you can imagine with that idea that this view was got, gained a lot of popularity during the Victorian era when the British Empire was at its height. And as it's, the British Empire is expanding, the gospel's kind of going with it. And there's no doubt that God used that expansion to bring the gospel as well as some problems with colonialism. And it wasn't just British colonialism, of course, it was other uh, quote unquote Christian nations doing this. Uh, and so there was some good and some very bad that happened with that. But still, it was popular during that, that time because they saw, look, the world's getting more Christian. We're civilizing right. the world, and the gospel's a big part of that. But, so but I, I, I want to know where they get that from the Bible, John. Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, there's a couple places that they, 
well, I should say this about each view, every view, because they, this is in a sense, uh, in a sense provides a lens by which they interpret a lot of other scriptures. Every view would say, oh, we see it throughout the Bible. But there's a few places with each view that I think um, give some credence to that. So, so for post-millennialism, and I should say this as well, they believe that Christ returns at the end of that golden era, so that the world's become more Christianized. Christ returns, kind of there's that final judgment of the wicked, and then, then there's began what's called the eternal state. So the earth is completely destroyed, and uh, at least as far as we can see, as far as I can understand, and then the, the sort of uh, eternal state begins with Christ in his, his church. Um, so, so, so one of the things to think about is, is the, the, in Matthew chapter 13, there's these kingdom parables. And I have to say that looking at those from a post-millennial uh, post, uh, perspective, I can see why they, they say they're easy to interpret that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously I don't agree with that. I mean, as we know, as we've been talking about, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I can see why they say that. There's also verses like Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, that says, uh, He, that's God's chosen king, will judge between the nations, will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor uh, will they train for war anymore. So mm-hmm. it, it does sound like there's something progressively better mm-hmm. about the reign of God's uh, king and so chosen king. And so with that, they would say, see, that's something that's happening um, with the Christianization of the world. And there's no doubt that there's a lot of things that we in Western culture would value that have their roots in the gospel. In fact, a lot of people who aren't church or familiar sometimes don't even realize that the things that they hold value, justice and equality for all, um, uh, sort of the, 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 the need for people to be educated, uh, to have the freedom to make their own choices, the idea of of uh, health care for all. These kinds of things actually are rooted in the gospel and the yeah. ministry of Jesus, mm-hmm. whether we recognize it or not. Mm-hmm. And so they would say these kind of uh, uh, progressions have, have, have helped that or, or would substantiate this view. Yeah, so there's a wonderful optimism to, to is. it, isn't there? Yeah. Kind of reaching for that kind yeah. of world peace. But it, it, I'll be honest, it doesn't look like that's really what we're seeing in the world state today. Is everything getting nicer and, and better? No, it doesn't seem that way. In fact, we also see that the, the quote-unquote Christian nations uh, kind of turning their back. I mean, I think Great Britain is a perfect example of a nation that has a been there, done that view of Christianity. So I wouldn't say it's becoming more... Um, uh, more sympathetic to to the gospel. It's become, in a sense, more uh, dismissive or even sometimes hostile to the gospel. So I'm not sure this actually fits mm-hmm. with what we see happening in the world. You know, to be fair, uh, there's a lot of things happening in South America, a lot of growth of evangelicalism in South America among African nations, but also some of that isn't always a, a healthy gospel. Some of it is a gospel that is more prosperity gospel, which might be another podcast that we get into later on. <laughs> yeah, sure. But that's 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 what we call postmillennialism. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, because our, our mission isn't to make Christianized nations, is it? It's to make disciples in Absolutely. in Jesus' name. But we're not writing off this view totally, are we? Is there some respectable, you know, proponents yeah, to this? Absolutely. In fact, what I want to do with each of these views is kind of share a couple individuals or theologians that have personally impacted me in a positive way that hold each view. Because I, it's important that we recognize people can hold this view, uh, even if we strong, even if I strongly disagree with it. Uh, and and still be fruitful. A, a real famous theologian is a guy named R.C. Sproul. I think he went home to be with the Lord last year. But mm-hmm. R.C. Sproul's written some amazingly good books. 
Uh, in fact, uh, a book he read, he wrote on apologetics when I was in Bible college, I read, and it really helped solidify my faith. It was a really big, had a big impact on me. There's another gentleman by the name of Ian Murray who kind of started the Banner of Truth publishing company. Yeah. Banner of Truth produces some great books, mm. uh, many of which that also bless me. So, so then again, godly uh, people who love Jesus. Yeah, I've heard of some books. of these guys. Yeah, yeah they, mm-hmm. they've done that. So those are a couple of guys that have impacted me personally. Lots more people believe this view. It's probably a minority, more of a minority view than a majority view, but still. Uh, there are some godly people who believe this. Right. Okay, John. Well, um, thinking then about the next view, I've heard of uh, amillennialism. I, I think that's quite a popular view uh, here in Britain. Why do you think it's so popular and what? how does that differentiate from the other sure. views? Sure. It is a very popular view, especially among more reformed churches. So it, 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 if people don't know what we mean by that, I think most people at Servants would know what I mean by, by reformed, but churches that um, really are influenced by the theology that came out of the Reformation. And that would include myself, things like uh, views like we believe that the gospel is, uh, that we're saved by grace alone, God's grace alone, through faith alone, uh, not by our works, and in Christ alone, that faith is in Christ alone. Um, Also views that really God's saving us for his glory. God can't give us anything greater than himself. That's one of the things that we mean by uh, for his glory alone. And then of course, the, the final authority for all truth is um, uh, the scripture alone. And so those who hold those views, it, it, especially in, I'd say in Europe, uh, those who hold those views would be strongly amillennialist. Most Catholics would be amillennialist or amillennialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, those who would hold this view don't really like the, the term amillennialist. They would say more realized millennialist they, because they, they too see that we are now in the millennial period like the post-millennialists. But what they see is things not necessarily... Uh, always getting better, or the whole world being Christianized, but definitely the gospel going throughout the world. And so so they kind of teach this as a symbolic of the church age, sort of from the, the time of Christ's uh, ascension to the time of Christ's return, um, or, or really from the time of Christ's resurrection, most of them would see this. Uh, and it's going to continue until he comes back. They see it's, it's spiritual in nature, so they in the same as the post but they do believe in a literal return of, of Jesus Christ, judging, uh, uh, making a final judgment at the end. In fact, some amillennialists uh, see kind of uh, a lot of the sort of things in Revelation about judgment as, as kind of uh, symbolic, but also as having a uh, kind of, uh, especially the stuff about Gog and Magog at the end, having a kind of final literal fulfillment where God uh, Jesus comes back and, and brings that final judgment. And that at that time, he returns to the earth and reigns physically on this on this earth uh, uh, in, a, in a permanent sense, or on a new earth on a permanent sense. And so they see that. Interesting, too, in Revelation uh, chapter 20, if you, if you read a couple of verses before, it talks about how, how Satan is bound during this thousand years. And so a lot of people, especially people from, from my uh, background and from my tribe, would say, well, that kind of seems obvious that Christ, that the that Satan isn't bound. I mean, you know, anyone who's mm. been a Christian would say, I don't feel like Satan's bound. Yeah, we still um, live in the presence of sin, don't we? We're in a fallen world. Yeah. Can, you know, can the amillennialists really say that Jesus has com- yeah. is completely reigning and there's nothing else to be fulfilled? Absolutely. So I, I, I would say they have a valid answer for this, though it's not an answer I agree with. And their valid answer is, is really comes from Matthew chapter 12, what Jesus said, where Jesus says, but if it is by the spirit of, of God that I drive out demons, then, uh, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
and I, this in other words, we're in that spiritual time of the kingdom. Uh, uh, or again, uh, he says, how can any, uh, anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder the house. So they would see this as Satan's been bound, not completely, but he's in a sense been chained and uh, so that the gospel can go out to the nations. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of where they come from. I, I think that's a valid way to look at this. And there's some other things, the way they explain other things that bring some validity to this. The reason I don't hold to amillennialism uh, is twofold. One we'll talk about in a minute. But partly is, uh, even with this binding of Satan, I think you know they, they kind of want to say that Satan can't keep the gospel from going to the nations. And yet... Paul seems to see, say pretty clearly uh, uh, to the Corinthians that that the God of this age blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. Uh, and so it seems like, well, he's still kind of busy keeping people deceived. Sure. So, so I'm not too sure if that's really the clearest way to look at Revelation 20. Right, yeah. uh, but again, really good guys believe this. Uh, um, in fact, really the way this, this came about was uh, a fourth century theologian named Augustine and Augustine um, uh, started to popularize um, a way to interpret scripture that included something that we call allegory. So he, he saw that these things were symbolic, therefore they should be interpreted allegorically. There's some merit to that. Um, I personally think he took that too far and, and amillennialism sort of came into power. <clears throat> I also think one of the reasons that view probably got popular was, of course, it's the time when Constantine the emperor of Rome is converted, at least supposedly. And you can't have a view that says the, the world's going to be uh, ruled by an evil power and Christ is going to knock him out when the, ruled, the world is then ruled by the power. There's of, like a political pressure there, there, there the I, I think potentially at least that was there. Um, but other, other lots of people believe this. Most of the reformers actually believed in amillennialism or amillennialism or realized millennialism, whatever you want to call it. Right. But some modern guys, see a lot of modern guys too. Again, one of my, uh, an author that wrote, an uh, author named J.I. Packer wrote a great book called Knowing God. I recommend that book to everybody. It's a really great book. Um, you know, he, he was an amillennialist as well as many others. So again, even if I don't agree with this view, we can learn some great stuff from, from amillennialists yeah. or realized millennials, whatever they'd like to be called. <laughs> my, my lecturers at my um, union theology do, all the time recommend we go and reference J.I. Packer. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's the feeling uh, to take scripture less as a literal in interpretation but see much more of it as symbolism and, and signs and images and and not to tie it down to kind of future realities yeah yeah, yeah and, and of course as there is in all these views within each view there's variances of interpretations and applications oh, yeah. and so we have to be gracious with people. right so john i've heard you knock down the first two uh, well, lenses we've dis discovered yeah. so what are you then yeah. so i i would be what's called a premillennialist and what that means is basically Basically, we believe that Jesus is going to uh, literally return before this uh, millennial age, before this thousand-year reign. All premillennialists believe that Christ returns before the, the thousand-year reign. Some see it as a literal thousand years. Some see it as just symbolic as reigning on this earth for a long time. Um, this was the most highly held view for the first several centuries of the church. Almost all the church fathers believe this, which to me gives it some serious There's weight. There's history on its side. There's got some, I think so. Um, and, 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 uh, and also it, it really kind of only began to die out kind of after the time of, of 
Augustine, and when the sort of the Catholic Church, what we now view as the Catholic Church, was being formed, okay. um, it's only then that it kind of began to to uh, fade away. So, you know, so I personally uh, still kind of hold to this view, and I, I think if you read Revelation 19 and 20 together uh, as a natural flow. It really makes sense that Christ returns in Revelation chapter 19, that he reigns in chapter 20. In fact, I'll just read a couple of verses. Actually, why don't you read those verses, Ben? Why don't you read Revelation 19, 11 to 16? Sure. So that says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed, clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that sounds like a pretty clear picture of Jesus coming back, John. Yeah, in fact, it's really every theologian believes, everyone who takes the Bible seriously believes this is talking about Christ. So it makes sense to me that he's coming back at this time. This is what it's showing, coming back as that triumphal king, destroying uh, all the wickedness in the earth and reigning uh, which is what we see happening then in, in chapter 20, reigning for that thousand years. Right. So to me, it's just the most natural reading of Scripture to see uh, premillennialism. Uh, as I said, all the early church fathers did that. A very popular theologian, in fact, a great place to start if you want to study systematic theology, is a guy named Wayne Grudem. Yeah, I've and, read his stuff. It's yeah, good. It's, it's really good stuff. And Wayne Grudem is a premillennialist. Um, the tribe I'm from, Calvary Chapel, strongly all premillennialist. In fact, premillennialism is probably the uh, the maybe almost subconscious view of most American Christians for different reasons. Uh, uh, but it's that's that's a very popular view in America, whereas like amillennialism is a very popular view in Great Britain. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. So is, is that um, simple, done and dusted? We pick one of these three views to understand our revelation and our future end times. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's simple, but I, I, I do think, in fact, what I'm going to be doing in future podcasts is I can't answer the questions about end times without picking a lens. It would get so confusing. It gets so varied. I have to pick one of these things. And, and I just want to be clear, this is my conviction, premillennialism, and I'm going to answer it. But even then, it's not that that uncomplicated because... Within premillennialism, there's two main views. One is historical premillennialism, uh, and they kind of see uh, sort of prophetic history. You might say the book of Revelation. They might see that from, say, chapters uh, 1 to um, 18 as kind of happening cyclically. So, so it's like it's a cycle that kind of, as we said, the birth, kind of the birth pains happening yeah. more frequently, more intense that these things kind of unpack that and are saying how these things are going to get more intense mm. toward the end before Jesus comes back. So they see it as kind of layer upon layer, cycle upon cycle. Right. Whereas there's a, the, the view that I was sort of discipled in, and that's quite popular in the States, is dispensational premillennialism, which is a very new view. It's only a couple hundred years old, uh, kind of established with John Darby, who was the, uh, kind of the, uh, one of the founders or, or the first... Uh, prominent leaders of the Brethren movement right. that influenced almost all the Pentecostal movements. Calvary Chapel kind of came out of the Pentecostal movement, so 
So most charismatic Pentecostals that were influ- uh, movements that were influenced in the last two centuries uh, would, would hold to a premillennial and even probably a dispensational leaning view. And so uh, that sees uh, not so much of a cyclical view uh, as much as they would see it more of a linear, kind of like a stopwatch. If you are uh, kind of timing someone with a stopwatch, you can kind of press a lap and the stopwatch keeps moving, time keeps moving forward, but a, a sort of a new thing has happened, another thing's happened. So they see it a little bit more like that. I'm oversimplifying all these views, but that's kind of a general way to say it. So So I I get the historical side that kind of history repeats itself. Um, The the dispensationalism, it sounds like you're saying that comes from uh, different kind of discrete, separate ages, almost different dispensings. Yeah. And and one of the the things that there's a couple of things that that make dispensationalist premillennialism (laughs) distinct from historical premillennialism. One is they see a lot of what the, the prophecies that are about the end of the age or the consummation of all things, they see those things uh, sort of centered on the nation of Israel. So now historical premillennialists, many of them believe God still has a plan for ethnic Israel, not all, but many. But dispensational premillennialists definitely see God as a plan for ethnic Israel and most of the fulfillment of these eschatological prophecies, these end times prophecies uh, are, are revolving around them. And so they go to Daniel chapter 9 and the, the 70 weeks of Daniel, which we may look at at a future podcast, and, and, and see a, a close to literal, uh, at least, uh, fulfillment of the first 69 weeks and therefore assume a literal fulfillment of the 70th week. And we can, again, get in, into that future, uh, that kind of interpretation stuff later on. Yeah. Um, but because it's quite complex, what I plan to do in the future is to answer the questions um, uh, from a pre-millennialist viewpoint, and I'm going to give answers both from historical premillennialist and a dispensational premillennialist, but only really specifically from a what's called a pre-tribulational uh, dispensationalist view, because that's kind of the most popular view. That believes that, that Jesus is going to take his church out before he starts pouring out his wrath during that 70th week of Daniel, which is really a seven-year period. So again, we'll probably unpack some of that as we answer the specific questions, Mm. but that's the view. The reason I'm giving both views is is that I've now, as I've mentioned in the last podcast, I've taught the book of Revelation uh, expositorily three times. I've taught the book of Daniel expositorily twice. I've taught all the Gospels expositorily twice. I feel like I have a fairly good grasp specifically on a dispensational premillennial view. But in, in more recent years, I'd say probably anywhere from the last uh, five to 10 years, well, well, actually for even before I moved to England, I was wrestling with dispensationalism, not knowing that's what I was wrestling with, wrestling with sort of how clear they, they want to be about these things and how they didn't seem that clear to me. And so now I'm in a place where I'm strongly still, strongly premillennialist. I value some of the dispensational views of my brothers and how they answer questions. But I, I kind of lean a little bit towards historical premillennialism, which might take some of my Calvary Chapel friends by uh, be a bit shocking them. But that's kind of where I'm, I'm kind of leaning. And so I want to answer from both because 
I think it's important for us to 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 see those things, and I can't answer from all the views together. No, sure. That that's kind of what I wanted to ask John about your journey between these views, because I think it's quite clear from the American and Cowrie Chapel background, you've come out of this uh, dispensational, premillennial um, um, sort of idea, and and now maybe arriving a little bit more between the two, or more towards hi- historical. Is is it important w- which one to pick, and and our questions that are being asked by the people? Um, is are they within one small view? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, uh, one, I'll say this: they almost definitely are questions that are provoked by an understanding that was probably um, dispensational. Uh, they probably wouldn't. They, a lot of people wouldn't know that, or they would say maybe it is, maybe it's not. But that's actually where they come from, because it's a dispensational view that sees a uh, tends to see a literal futuristic uh, fulfillment of the Book of Revelation, and and so I think. Um, we will see why that is and answer some of those things on the next podcast. I do think it's important that we answer, ask, uh, that we ask these questions and answer these questions as best we can. I think it's important that you recognize that you are viewing both the questions and the answers from a lens. I think one of the things whether about, you realize it or not, whether you realize it or not, <laughs> I think this is one of the things that's tricky. The Bible encourages us; Scripture encourages us to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then it goes on to talk about that there's a doctrinal um, alignment for that. It says that there's one God, there's one Lord, there's one baptism, so on and so forth. And this is in Ephesians chapter four. And so the thing is, we are called to keep a, a unity and it, and it doesn't mention one view of the return of Christ. And so I think it's not necessarily where we have to have a unity of the spirit. But we do have to pick a lens if we're going to interpret Scripture. If we see interpreting Scripture is important, and we should, we have to have a view. But I think really kind of wrap this up for this episode up. I think it's important for us to see what's most important is that we know that there are things that all the views agree on. Mm -hmm. Primarily, I think it's important all views agree that Jesus uh, is going to return, and he does bring God's judgment to this earth, righteousness to this earth, and that should sober us. That should... It, for those of us who know Jesus, we should be excited about that. Not that we want God's, we want people to die or be judged, but excited that God's going to bring justice. He's promised to bring justice. One of the things that people balk against Christianity is, of course, that why is a God of uh, uh, that's so good allow so much injustice? Well, He doesn't. He's dealt with it um, by entering in uh, and dying for us. We've mentioned before, but also He's going to come back. Jesus is going to come back and judge all justice. In fact, Ben, why don't you read Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Oh, sure. Um, That says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That sounds kind of terrifying. It's, it's incredibly terrifying. Uh, in fact, uh, and, I, and I just want to kind of maybe close with this. It seems counterintuitive to hear this term, the wrath of the Lamb. But it's important for us to recognize that the same God, the Son, who, who uh, took on human flesh and came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, 
is going to return to judge the sins of the world. And the only way we escape that wrath to come is to put our faith in Jesus. So I want to go back really to Acts, the book of Acts. And one, I want to exhort anyone who may listen to this that's not yet a believer in Jesus. If you're afraid of the Lord's coming, you have to ask yourself, do I really believe he died for my sins? Because if you think it's about what you're going to do, this should scare you. Because the truth is, he's going to judge every thought, word, and deed. And we should be sober about that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you recognize that you need Jesus, I would exhort you the same way Peter exhorted those Jews. Repent. That means to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Be converted. Be changed. Let the Lord you know, save you. Be born again, as Jesus said. That your sins may be blotted out. Phew. So that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What a great thing to experience even now. And that he may send Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, and those who don't know Jesus, to really take heed to that. And it also, for those of us who know Jesus, we need to be exhorted the way Jesus exhorted the disciples. Look, don't worry so much about the times and the seasons, but be filled with the Holy Spirit and testify of Jesus. Mm. Amen. Oh, great. Thanks, John. Um, For any of you who want to hear more about John's specific teaching on these passages in Revelations, the whole book, and Thessalonians as well, you can go see them uh, on our website. They'll be on the YouTube channel. Search YouTube for Servants Church Norwich, or head to our website for that and more. That's servantschurch.org.uk. John, I'm looking forward to future episodes where we can get into some of these different views a bit more and really tackle some people's specific questions about maybe Daniel's prophecies, the, the 70 weeks and the mark of the beast and that sort of thing. So stay tuned guys wait for the next episode of the podcast and thanks very much for listening 